Okay, folks, back here with uh, Ken Alper, the tax man. How you doing? Doing great, Jeff. Thanks for having me. It's uh, the second day of the special session, but to me it feels like uh, summer camp has ended. People are packing things up. It seems like very quiet around here. Is that kind of the normal? So there's the regular end of session stuff that you'll see. People are packing boxes ready to go home to wherever their district is. But there's also the special session. The special session is not going to really gear up till next week. Everyone was working a lot late nights those last few days. And then there's the call. We resolved a lot of the crime bill issues. And then they'll be back next week for the budget mm-hmm. and the other issues. So you're, uh, you're one of my first. I'm not sure if I've done one with a legislative staffer. I think maybe former staffers. So you're uh, the first current staffer that's come on the landmine radio. So I appreciate that. I've been, gotten to know you over the last couple of years. And, uh, and I'm newly returned to the staff. I worked here uh, for 10 years, and then I spent four years with the Walker administration, of you, That's why I called you the tax man, because you were director of tax division, right? Yeah, I was the director of the tax division. I got to be known as that. That's a, that's a great job. It was super fun. I was, really loved being able to do it. And it's really two different jobs, because uh, I'm the director of an agency. I've got a, an arm of the Department of Revenue. We're collecting all of the state's taxes, bringing in all the different kinds of money, oil, cigarettes, corporate income, all that but I was also part of the fiscal policy team. I got to help Governor Walker develop his revenue bills and help carry that stuff through the legislature, figure out how we're going to try to resolve the fiscal crisis. So it was it was two very different functions, and it was really did, a lot of work, a lot of hours, but a lot of fun. Did you go to the Fairbanks thing with the dorms and all that? Yes. That first summer in June of 15, we went up there, and it was lots and lots of people were there, and you know stickers on the posters on the wall, and what do people think we should do? I drafted the the guideline paper, the white paper that that laid out what the options were, what we could do with the permanent fund, what we could do with different types of statewide taxes, what could potentially be done with oil. And people were talking about all the different kinds of things and also budget cuts. But what the Walker administration doesn't get enough credit for is just how much we cut the budget over the last four years. Well, it's interesting. You know, you look back and when Walker won, um, the price of oil started to go, go down. And I remember... When I was researching some for, we were, I interviewed him a few times, and I looked at some old interviews he gave after he was kind of concluded that he won. And there was this interview he said where you know the price is uh, kind of oils were concerned it's it's um it's at seventy and we're very worried about that. And it's like going back, you know, now seventy is like yeah, you know, because then it went down to thirty. And it's just interesting how I think folks don't maybe sometimes appreciate that. You know, within a few months of him being elected, I mean, there was a major, major crash in oil prices. And I mean, the revenues went from, you know, so many billions to, you know, there was a three point some billion dollar deficit, right? It really dropped during the that fall, during the campaign. I think the peak price was in July of 14. And by the time he took office in December, it was way, way down. I remember the, the revenue sources book, the big revenue forecast was done almost ready for the presses. And then we came in and we had to revise all the numbers because the, the prices we thought were going to happen in October were way out of line. By the time we got into office in December, we revised everything down like 20 bucks a barrel. Yeah, it's like the billions of dollars. The interview, you know, he, he said he, he said 70, like kind of it was a bad thing. And then, like I said, nowadays, 70s, people are kind of excited about 70 when it was down to 30. So oil revenue is the big variable. All of the non-oil revenue the state gets is maybe half a billion dollars a year between motor fuel, cigarettes, corporate income, that kind of stuff. 
the oil revenue is as much as $10 billion. Unrestricted, it went down to $1 billion. That's a $9 billion shift. So Was 10 the peak? Is that kind 10, of 10 was in the, like 2012 and 2008 were the two biggest revenue years we've ever had. Back when the price of oil was over $100 and the, the, the tax system supported it, it was just a very, uh, it, was, it was a river of money in a lot of ways. And most of it got put into savings. That's also underappreciated back in those days. The Constitutional Budget Reserve was down to $2 billion back in 2002, 2003. It got replenished back to $11 billion. They set another $5 billion into the statutory budget reserve. There was a billion dollars in the public education fund. All these savings got put aside during that era of big surpluses. Can you real quick just explain the difference between the Constitutional Budget Reserve and the Statutory Budget Reserve? So the Constitutional Budget Reserve was created to, as a place to put settlement money, the money that comes after the fact from if, if there's a lawsuit over underpayment of royalties or something like that, and then the state gets a big settlement 10 years later, to make sure like that the, that uh, doesn't get spent that? as Amarada it comes Hess? in. Uh, Amarada Hess was one of them, but there were a dozen of them. I mean, going back to the 70s, right at the beginning of TAPS, there were fights over what was the right level of royalty, and, and billions of dollars of extra money after the fact came in. So that's what filled the Constitutional Budget Reserve. And the way it was written, the only way to get money out of that is by a supermajority vote. You need three quarters of the House and three quarters of the Senate to agree. So the routine method from about 1994 to 2004 was to come to some sort of deal with whoever was in the minority at the time, give them some of the things that they wanted in exchange, they would vote to take the money out of the CBR and that's how they would balance the budget. But the other thing that's in the Constitution is you have to pay that back. So once we got into surpluses in about 2005, they started paying it all back. And by 2009-10, they had finished paying it back and we still had surpluses. So the people that were in charge of the legislature at the time said, you know, if we put more money in there, you're locking it up behind that three-quarter vote, which takes away leverage, which makes it harder to access. So they set up the statutory budget reserve as a place that they can get at more easily to take extra money once they had finished filling up the constitutional budget reserve. That's a, that's a majority vote? And that's just a simple majority vote. It's so, just so a the, parking space for money, really. I know they have to pay it back, but that's basically, there's there's nothing, they have to pay it back, but there's nothing for, forcibly requiring them to. It's when they have the money, right? It's kind of open for whenever they want to. Right. When well, they can. It's a little technical because there's lots of little sub-funds of the general fund. Uh, there's a workers' comp fund, a fisherman's fund. There's a couple dozen of them. And those are supposed to get swept. They're considered general fund. So every June 30th, they automatically go back into the Constitutional Budget Reserve. And then every July 1st, the budget always has language they call a reverse sweep, where that money goes back out to the exact same place it came from in the exact same amount. And it's a big technical transaction. But it actually requires a three-quarter vote of the legislature every year just for the reverse so sweep. when the money gets swept, it's an automatic, is it like a bank transfer to another account? I mean, how does that exactly work? Is it The Treasury Division at the Department of Revenue has it all accounted for. They're aware of it. It, it shows up in our financial annual reporting. I don't think it's separate bank accounts. It's uh, one of my favorite acronym inside the Treasury. Is, it's called JAFONZI. Do you Jaf know that Jaf one? JAFONZI, yeah. Uh, General, hold on, because I did an article about... Um, uh, those ADA uh, loan for the tax credits mm -hmm. thing and uh, general. Hold on a second. General, what's the, the general fund and other non-segregated non investments? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So these are the other non-segregated investments. Yeah, a right. I mean, I'm from right. that era. A. I love, I loved happy days. Right. So Jafonzi uh, is all managed as a pool, basically by the treasury, but the ledgers, the the accountants are aware of exactly how much of it belongs to which sub fund. 
So, okay, so you were with Walker four years, tax um, director, but then before that you were also a staffer in the legislature, right? Here in the legislature for about 10 years, and I worked mostly for the House minority, for the Democrats, Beth Crutula and Harry Crawford. My first boss was Eric Croft. What'd you do before that? Well, uh, I worked for the Department of Fish and Game for a while as as a economic development type person, but I came up to Juneau originally. My wife and I own a business in Juneau called the Silver Bow Inn. I was going to, I got to give the shout out because when I first came here for the swearing in before I wasn't sure if I was going to be here full time or not, uh, I stayed at the Silver Bow and uh, very nice place. Thank you. That That's a shout out to my wife, Jill. She runs that place. I help out around the edges a little bit. And for 18 years, we had a bakery there. We had the first New York bagel bakery in Alaska. I heard about that, yeah. And people still miss it. I miss baking them. It's hard to run a restaurant. It's a rough business to be in. But the actual baking part I always really enjoyed. And it was, it was a fun part of our identity. And we live above the store. So it's a, an old-fashioned lifestyle. We live right here in downtown Juneau. I'm just two blocks from work. I'm a, I'm a fan of the hot tub over at the Silver Bow. Big you, fan of that. You seem like a hot tub kind of guy. I, I am. A, I am definitely a hot tub kind of guy. That's uh, accurate. I was surprised when you came to the hotel and you came by yourself. I figured you'd, uh, you know, you'd lure someone into the hot tub with you. I was working. I mean, actually, whenever that silver bowl comes up, people kind of the joke is like, oh, let's go to the hot tub. You know, you, you guys should maybe hey, think about hot tub parties. Maybe you can make a little extra revenue. Our customer base is a little bit older and more conservative than that. I think the hot tub parties might drive away the regular hotel guests. Maybe they wouldn't appreciate. <laughs> That's true. I remember staying, checking in. There was a few kind of uh, government official people that were staying there as well. So they probably wouldn't have appreciated the. Uh... During the legislative session, people come and stay there because they've got business in Juneau, and then it's popular in the summertime because it's downtown Juneau, and there's a lot of tourists come up here. Yeah, you guys probably are slamming in the summer, right? I mean, it's right. It's right in the middle of. I mean, you can walk to the Capitol in a few minutes. Yeah, definitely. Juneau is largely a cruise ship destination, but about 10 or 20% of the people come as independent travelers. Uh, we love that tourist because they, they stay in the hotels and they rent cars and they eat in the restaurants and they go on helicopter trips too and stuff like that. We, we love our guests. They're fun people. And my wife runs a really sweet operation. I remember, I'm proud of our little downtown business. Also, I want to um, mention, you told me uh, a few months ago that there's a house up here. You can kind of you can't see it from here, but it burnt. It like caught on fire, right? A really old, older house. I don't know how much you listeners care about my my personal business that much, but yes. Well, we, I just think uh, it's, it's we bought a bought burnt that. out house. I'm moving to a new house that's one block from the Capitol. Once we fix it up, it'll uh, take about a year to finish the big, construction project. Though. Big project, huh? Big big project. That's another another walk to work deal. It is another walk to work deal, and uh, it it means I got to stay employed. That's for sure because right. it's an expensive project. So, so you were uh, with Walker Dunleavy wins, and, and a lot of people get new, you know get let go, um, and then you're yes. working. For... My resignation was accepted effective noon today. I got one of those emails. You, you were one of the immediates. I certainly was. Did you probably expect? You probably kind of expected that, right? Well, yes. Everyone's in a little bit of denial, but the reality of it is, I carried a chunk of Bill Walker's revenue agenda, his tax agenda, and our new governor had a different idea of how mm-hmm. he wanted to solve the problem, so he wanted his own people working in those kind of positions. It makes perfect sense. So during the kind of limbo phase, you were kind of, the 30 days, there was no organization, and um, then you got, you got hired after that, after that was... During those 30 days, you had it on your blog. Uh, Paul Seaton was nice enough to scoop me up so that I didn't end up unemployed. And that, that, that was after and- the election. Right. At, well, after the layoff. So the election was in November. The governor came in in December, but the new legislature doesn't come in until January. Right, yeah, so right. there's this period of time where the old legislature was still in place. And, uh, and Paul Seaton scooped me up and, and worked with him for his last few weeks. He had lost 
his race, but he was still very active and very involved in, in a lot of issues. So I got to help you him out your, on his way out the door. Keep your insurance and all that stuff. You know, for better or for worse, I'm a career public servant, and that mm-hmm. means I got to worry about stuff like my own pension. What's your background before? I mean, are you like an economist? or I'm actually an urban planner. I, I, I'm from the East Coast, and I moved to Seattle originally to go to the University of Washington. I have a master's degree in urban planning from the University of Washington. And from there is where I first got involved in Alaska. There were class trips, which became a summer internship, which became a thesis project. And I fell in love with Juno while I was based out of Seattle. I just saw this thing on Vice News about New York City. They're starting to kind of put a tax on cars in the city. And then they went to, you know, they want to change how that works. But then they went to Finland and in Helsinki, they're trying to essentially kind of take away the roads in the cities. In the old inner cities. If you could imagine these hundreds of years old cities in Europe, they were built long before there were cars. At best, they were horse-drawn carriages and mostly they're narrow pedestrian streets. And you add modern vehicles in there, you get massive congestion and there's no room for parking. So they've used what they call a congestion pricing model where... You have a little electronic thing on your car, and it uh, registers every time you drive in there, and it's like a $10 fee per day, so you stay away if you don't need to be down there, and it fewer people will go there if it costs more. It's just like taxation, right? Uh, people, will, people will adjust their behavior based on what it costs. So New York City is probably the most dense place in the United States, at least, and it, they're trying to add something like that, and it's going to be a heavy lift because we're Americans, right? We don't like being told that we can't drive someplace. I guess they're saying that by, by doing this, they'll you know, discourage people from driving, but the people will still drive. They'll raise money for public transit. And then eventually, you know, they want to really focus on people getting on the buses and the trains. And If you uh, look at a list of the top public transportation systems in the United States, you're talking many of them, tens of thousands of riders in a day. A few of them have hundreds of thousands of riders in a day. This three and a half million people drive the New York City subways every single day. It's just an order of magnitude greater than everything else in the whole country. So there is tremendous transit use, but, and if you drive a car down there, my father goes in the city, he pulled Parker's car, he'll pay 50 bucks just for the evening to park his car. It's like, dad, take a bus, you know? My parents are from Chicago originally. I grew up in New Mexico, but we'll go back to Chicago and, you know, I still have family there and it's just like, it's like nuts to try to find a place. I mean, it's like, it's like 24 bucks for the first hour and then 10, you know, just insane. It's insane. It's so expensive. But if the transit works well and there's some sort of a place on the outskirts where you could dump your car and get in a train easily enough, people should be encouraged to do that. So with this stuff, I've I've kind of heard, and you know better than me, but I've heard that with public transit, the most important thing is just consistency. People need to know it's going to be there and and on time. And and if if that's the case, then people use it. Uh, If it shows up every five or ten minutes and it becomes automatic, the danger is where you're checking the schedule, oh crap, if I miss this train, the next one's not going to be here for an hour, then people aren't going to routinely take mm-hmm. it the same way. Yes, yeah, so I spent a year in Australia, and, and I spent three months in Sydney, and I, man, I just, I've, you've been there? No. Their, their, their train system is just so good. It's just, it's like, it's like, there's an app you can use, you know, but other parts of Europe are the same way. It's just, it's just so nice. I mean, you don't have to have a car there. You can pretty much go anywhere in the city, outside of the city. And there's always a train, uh, a, a rail to get on. So how come you came back? I always wondered why you left Australia. Well, the the truth is I loved it so much there. Uh, the visa I had was a 462. It's like a holiday work and travel visa for Americans. And there's other ones for... Basically, there's this program where people from almost any country can go to Australia for a year and work and travel. And if they do three months of like regional work or farm work, they can add a year. 
Uh, I was too old to do another year because I came at the end of the age limit. But I wanted to actually stay. I really did. And I, I um, pursued a, a professional job where we have the H-1B here, you know, the work visa for foreigners. Certain types of skilled workers, the H-1B. Yeah. So, so they had the 457 visa, which essentially if a company, um, you know, wanted to hire you and, and you had a skill and there's a very long list of what was um, considered applicable to that, you could get hired under that visa. And within two years, you could become a resident. And two more years, you could become a citizen. And when I was in Sydney, through friends I met traveling and people I knew, I met a lot of people who had come to Australia four or five, six years ago, and they were citizens through the 457 scheme. And I was like, wow, you know, that, that seems really, that's a pretty quick path to do that. And I loved it there. And I kept looking for a work. It was a little bit hard because the company takes a bit of risk on to bring you on. And, you know, if, if you don't, if you leave, you know, they kind of lose. Um, and it's a bit of a risk. But anyways, I had a job in Brisbane lined up. And I was like pretty excited they were going to do it. And that same week, the job was it was for a large global recruiting company doing like IT recruiting. Um, that same week, the, the Turnbull, former Prime Minister Turnbull government, scrapped the whole visa scheme and uh, under the banner of Australia first. Uh, I wonder where they heard that. Because so, so a conservative government that was anti-immigrant came in and you got stuck behind the wall. Yeah, so I mean, they're, they're essentially, yeah. I mean, there was some uh, issues with four, five, seven people that would... You know, they'd come from somewhere and they'd bring like their family, five or six. And there was some issues with it. But instead of fixing those you know, issues, they just scrapped the whole thing. So after that, I kind of gave up on I didn't want to spend my whole time just looking for a job like that. So then I just really did the more traveling and went to Darwin and all that. But, yeah, I got I got kind of that's a risk governments take when, you know, they do the stuff like that. They lose people that normally would be probably productive members of their society. So here we are in Juno. Uh, you're going home, I'm told, and you're going to miss, I guess, the end game of how we finally bring it together this year. Sorry about that. Yeah, so I was hoping to, I mean, it's so expensive in the summer and rents go up. But yeah, I mean, the, I guess so the special session, the way it works is the governor called it. So there's what, four things? There's the budget, there's uh, crime, education, spending, and the dividend. Is that the, the dividend part the, of the, the budget? The or? different budgets. And then education is really a budget item. The dispute is whether or not education really is funded for next year. So the governor put in an actual new bill. That's the first new bill you'll see at House and Senate Bill 1001. That all it has is the exact same number that was funded under the f sort of pre-funded formula last year. But it has the official numbers and it has all the right formats to it. The argument is over the legitimacy of what was already passed. The legislature is saying they passed education funding last year. The governor says because of the way it was done, it doesn't really count. So the governor originally introduced a budget and a separate bill for the permanent fund dividend, right? People say that, but the way I read the governor's budget, I didn't take it that way. The, if you remember the Wilikowski lawsuit with the Supreme Court that said the dividend should have happened automatically, and the Supreme Court says, no, no, you have to appropriate it, the governor doesn't really accept that. The governor believes the permanent fund should be an automatic transfer. transfer yeah. So the way the governor's original budget was written, it says after the amount transferred to meet the dividend formula and statute, and it referenced the 145B it was or something like that, uh, the remaining amount is transferred to the general fund for the budget. So in that syntax, I interpreted it to mean that he was funding the budget, the, dip, the dividend with that and just the remaining amount was going for government. The Governor put in a separate bill that was for the back dividends that had a specific appropriation for the three dividends that were paid at less than the historic formula over the last three years. But I, I did not see a separate bill 
that had a dividend formula for the coming mm-hmm. year. I, I sort of reversed engineered it from his actual budget. So technically, the, the operating budget um, could it wasn't passed, but you could pass it without a dividend because a dividend is not a constitutional obligation, correct? All of the departmental line items, all the disputes, except for one or two little boutique ones, are resolved. The, they could finish the budget now if they wanted to. Uh, the issue, of course, is over the dividend. And if the question is, we have to send a balanced budget. If they passed a budget without a dividend at all, we'd effectively have a surplus. So a surplus of about $700 million, maybe $600 million now. The, because the crime bill is going to have a big fiscal note attached to it. We mm. haven't seen those yet. That's going to be close to $50 million probably. So they, they could do that, or they could fund a dividend with that amount of money in it, which would be eleven, twelve hundred dollars $1,200 probably right now, and be done, or they could try to fix the rest of the dividend later on, something like that. But yes, if they wanted to pass an operating budget, as far as the actual operating budget parts of it, the House and Senate are pretty well in agreement with each other right now. I figured maybe they would do that just because of the SB or the HB 44, the ethics bill. Now, because they didn't pass a budget by day 121, the the per diem stops, as I understand it. Well, yeah, I don't know how many of them are worried about that as their primary focus. They're all trying to do well, its best, but it's it, it, it is three hundred dollars a day. It costs money to be here, and there's hotel and food, and and, and the reality cheap. of it is the the per diem, which is always uh, sort of a controversial topic with legislators, it really becomes necessary as you get into the summertime. It doesn't matter where you are, Juneau, Anchorage, whatever. It's the summertime, right? So hotels are more. If to the extent they had an apartment in Juneau, those apartments are being re-rented to someone else's summer help staff that's working in a jewelry store or a helicopter pilot or something mm-hmm. like that. So all those units are gone, and they have to actually start paying nightly hotel rates. So that three hundred dollars a day becomes a meaningful. Yeah, where, where, where I'm staying, I got the driftwood. It was a monthly rate, basically twelve hundred, so forty bucks a night because you could do a monthly discount. Nice, which is you know it's not bad for, until about today. Well, now right? I'm leaving, but I think it goes up to and maybe they because I was staying there before, maybe they do a deal, but now their nightly rate is like one fifty. So you know, even if it goes to eighty, it's still doubling essentially. You know, so it's so expensive to right. That's to hang a big out. difference. You're lucky you live here, so you don't I, have to worry about. I it. I live here, and a lot of the staff that doesn't live here that's needed to help with these end games of the legislature, they're also scrambling and they don't get pretty. And so it's, it's awkward. Do you, do you think it's um, in your experience as a staffer, is it more hard to end the session when there's no money or when there's a lot of money? Because what I've heard when there was a lot of money uh, is people always want, everybody wanted something before they would agree to kind of support. I mean, can you maybe talk about the differences when there's like a ton of money versus when there's like right now we're very low on money? When there's a lot of money, it's easy to get to get consensus. It's always to to kind of get someone to come along. Oh, I'll, I'll support this of yours, but su- give me this project or something like that. Uh, I don't know if it was easier to get out of the session. The sessions weren't running long because there wasn't the big thing to fight over. They would always manage to get it done by by the end. What, during the era, there was a lot of money, though. Those were also the early years after that initiative passed that cut it to a 90-day session. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, sometimes that's taken more seriously than others. They, a lot of the legislators like to try to get out in 90 days. They've only actually pulled it off a couple of times. That constitutional 121 is, has always been the hard deadline. It, it's tended to land somewhere in the middle. 
You know, it used to be when it was truly 121 days, you know the legislature was ending on day 121 and it would kind of be a party around here. There was no party here on, no, on it Wednesday was, night. It was re- a lot of folks I talked to said that it was very different because it was re- kind of quiet. And historically, they said there was a lot more people and running. And they said it's even more so during the second session when it's the last session of the legislature when all those bills are going to die basically after that. Right. There, there tends to be these marathon sessions where not the big big news bills of the day, but everyone's got a couple of bills that they're really passionately attached to or there's a constituent group or you know, something related to some industry, some group, some regulatory problem. And they all get stacked up in the second session, and they'll be here at 3 o'clock in the morning working through the little bills, usually two, three days before the end. And then in those last two, three days, that's when they're hammering out the last pieces of the budget. There were only a couple of those this week, like the uh, that bill that makes sure the state fair has their liquor license. Yeah, yeah. That was a problem, and they needed to get that done now because or else the fair wouldn't have had a liquor license this summer. So they got that sucker out the door before the, the yeah, special was, session came down. Quick, and yeah. of course, the problem with the special session is you can't, there's all these other bills out there, but you can't actually work on them. You're limited to the bills that are on the call of the special session. What's, um, what's maybe something, one of the, something come to mind, kind of one of the craziest things you've ever seen at the end? Has anything stuck out that's kind of like, wow, that, that happened? There was a, oil tax credit bill that kind of got gummed up and then a piece of it got shoved into another bill but the other body didn't like it so they they the original sponsor of it withdrew and killed his own bill and they took all the other pieces and rolled them into another bill and there was this dueling rules committee hearings the rules committee are the ones that schedule bills for the floor and they rarely actually meet as a committee but they are a committee they have the ability to do that and they'll do their own committee substitutes and amend a bill when there's something weird that needs to happen. One last couple of days, there were these multiple back and forth between the two rules committees as more and more bills got rolled into a single bill and they just kept changing the vehicle. And I think the final version of it was the bill that extended the film tax credit, but there was some sort of a corporate regulatory piece to it and there was an, there, there, there might have been an oil piece to it. In, in the end, it was like that old uh, the Highlander series, in the end there will be only one. You know, like, <laughs> how are you going to make everything into one? But that was one of the weirder ones. But just fights at, fights at the end of session where it's clear two legislators are hating each other and they're, they're trying to undermine each other. But it's it's not that interesting to the casual viewer it's sort of what you call inside the building stuff that the personality dynamics what you realize when you work here and, and then you leave and talk to normal people most people really don't care about yeah, they, the yeah. day-to-day that goes around they also have no idea what, yeah right I mean, in the end they, they're aware of the agencies that they interact with if they have fishing licenses or something like that or the dividend of course or if they pay taxes uh, you you've been an interesting uh insert as a, as a citizen blogger, dumping yourself into the middle of it, the, the social dynamic, the, the different odds and ends going around here. And, and, and you've actually helped make it more accessible and interesting for the, for a lot of people, I think around the state. Well, that's kind of my goal is, I mean, the average person, I have a lot of friends who, you know, I don't, I live in this world, but I also have friends who don't, aren't involved in this at all, but they're interested a little bit and they want to know, but you know, I'm, I'm it's my first session and I've learned so much and I'm, I probably feel like I know 20% of what I what I would need to know to really understand this place. And um, people are interested and they want to know, but they don't want to spend, most people are busy. They, don't, they can't take the time to understand all the stuff, stuff that happens here, but they want to know what's going on a little bit. And it's important to recognize that it's not an issue of Juno. 
I mean, I'm, I'm always a big advocate for Juno. I've made my life here. I own my home and business here. And I love that this is the capital and it would be a shame to lose it. People, I've been to special sessions in Anchorage and it's not like they're crammed packed with regular citizens either. It's like people have their lives. People don't come down yeah. and mess around in the legislature. The le- if you're interested in it and there's always sort of a, a boutique audience that loves what's going on. Gavel to gavel is a wonderful service. The, the cable channel or all the committee rooms are streamed live. When I was a director and I was working on big bills, I was on local TV a lot. And I, the people who are fans of this thing, they, I, I get the, Hey, I saw you, you know, you did great on this and that, but it's like 2% of the population. It's a, it's yeah, a, you know, I used to, I used to, before I really group. spent time down here and before I kind of got more involved in, in the political world, I was kind of a move the capital guy, but um, the more I've been down here, I mean, I, I agree with you. I don't think it matters where it is. You're going to, maybe you'd have a little bit on the margins, increased participation, but, but the average, per, no matter where it is, I mean, it's just, people are going to do what they're going to do in here. And I think the the thing in Juno that makes it interesting is because of the way Juno's situated and, and how the downtown is. Um, a lot of, I think a lot of things happen because people run into each other all the time. And if it was an Anchorage, for example, half of them would just go home and they wouldn't see each other except in the building. I think you've nailed it. And you're talking about legislators and, and staffers and everybody, not lobbyists, just lobbyists all of them, everybody. But, and when you say agency people, the people who are advocating for a cause, and not all of them are, are lobbyists. Lobbyists are people that basically you pay to represent your interests for you. A lot of people are representing their own. But everyone sort of knows each other around here and communication takes place informally. You run into each other in the restaurants and all of that. What I saw at special sessions in Anchorage is if you happen if you don't happen to be working on the big bill of the day whatever the special session is for if you're not on that committee you just go home and you might not even come into the office for a few days and and people aren't even around when you need to work on something whereas legislators are always walking around this building going to each other's offices bouncing ideas off each other making sure to try to get consensus before a new thing happens and having people in this crucible down here, I think, helps move the it's process like, forward. I mean, in, in my view, I mean, if it was going to happen, you know, they, they voted the bought the land in Willow. If it was going to happen twenty or thirty years ago, you know, it would have happened. At this point, I mean, this is the capital. This is where I mean, this is just where it is. This is where everything is, and I, uh, I think it's just kind of futile to keep. I know there's something now, a ballot proposal initiative about moving the session. Have you seen this? And I did see that. It would move legislative sessions to Anchorage. I think personally it was poorly written and I hope it doesn't pass, but that's one person's well, and then opinion. They, they, they had that building in the LA. I'm actually working on a story about the cost of all of that and the debacle with the Anchorage LAO, but now the new one they bought, I mean, it, it, it's not set up to hold a floor session or whatever. It's not really set up for that, but the old one, if they would have kept that, you know, that would, that, that would have been probably better it to use. It was closer and it was downtown Anchorage and, and downtown again, uh, it's walkable. So if you're working in the in the agencies downtown, if you're in the courthouse, if you're in the Atwood building where all the administrations and the governor's offices are, having the capital, sorry, having the LIO a few blocks down the street makes it uh, makes it accessible. The new building they bought in Midtown is actually sort of a pain in the neck to get to. Yeah, I mean, you can, there's parking, you know, but then you're there. And I mean, there's like the city diner kind of across the street there, but there's really nowhere to go. Uh, it requires the, the, a car. The sign on the building still says Wells. Still says Wells Fargo. They, they put they put up tell. a they put up a sign recently, this few months ago. I saw them with the trucks, but I was back in town. They they're, they're doing a whole renovation. You know, they're redoing the whole thing but inside. The, but the reality is, Juno is the capital. We should embrace it. It's a beautiful city. It's an historic city. It was uh, the capital moved here in 1900. Sitka is still resentful that we kind of stole the capital from them <laughs> Never, in 1900. I've back in that. the Russian days, 
Sitka was the capital and the Americans maintained it, but they discovered gold in Juneau in 1880 and it became sort of the main American town. It was a boom town at the town, time and over time. That's where the government moved to. Southeast used to be the kind of power center of Alaska, right? For a long time, for... Well, the coastal areas, before the railroad, before the roads, it was the areas that were accessible by boat, right? So, and southeast is the easiest to get to. And that's where, you know, and the the salmon industry was a big deal in those days. I mean, it's still a big deal, of course, but it was the main industry in the state for for decades. And a lot of the early canneries were in southeast. So, I mean, I I love Juneau, and I hope Juneau can always be the capital. It's something I'll always be passionate about. So let's talk a bit about, um, you were the tax director, and you're very involved in the oil and gas stuff. Um, it seems like every year oil and gas taxes get discussed and not and, this year. Um, yeah, a little bit. I mean, there was the credits, I guess the, the deductions, um, that was being discussed by a few folks, but there were um, proposals to, to get rid of a credit The the production tax on oil is a particularly complicated one. It's, uh, it's imperfect in a few ways, but it, uh, the calculation is such that you get to your profits and then you have a pretty high tax rate, 35%, and then you subtract this credit from it, which is based not on your profits or your prices, but just on how many barrels you've produced. So that $8 a barrel works out to be about $1.2 billion coming off the top. If the tax were the exact same amount of dollars, but it was just a lower rate without that credit, it wouldn't be so sort of glaring out there. But if you look at the reports from the Department of Revenue, it shows up as a $1.2 billion credit right around the time where we're facing a $1.2 billion deficit. So it's a, it's an easy target to talk about, that's for sure. And, and that's um, there's an alternative minimum at certain, at certain prices that goes away, right? And there's an alternative minimum minimum tax? Right. The tax can't go below 4% of what you call the gross value, which is the wellhead value. So that there's two different tax calculations on oil, one based on gross and one based on profits, and then the companies will pay the higher of those two calculations. So when prices were really low, like 2015, 2016, uh, the, pretty much everyone was paying at that gross minimum tax. One, and there's always on the charts, and you could see it, they're easy to spot in, the, in these graphics that they put in the Revenue Sources book. There's an inflection point or a crossover point where the price gets high enough that now they're paying the net tax instead of the gross tax. Today, it's around $65 a barrel. So with the price of oil around $70, we are a little bit into the place where people are paying that net profits tax. But if oil went down a few bucks, then all of a sudden, it would be we'd be back into that gross minimum tax again. So if oil was at 50 or 60 all session... Um, these these credits or deductions wouldn't have probably been a, been a thing, right? No, the, 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 the conversation would have been is that if we're talking about oil taxes, it shouldn't be about any one single feature. It should be about are we getting the right amount of revenue for the oil? That's And, and the credit is a little bit of a sideshow. It's a little bit of a distraction. It's what is the appropriate rate of taxation to, as far as balancing the state's needs with industry's needs to make a reasonable profit to invest and all that sort of thing. I don't know what the right number is. But yeah, if it were $50 oil, we would be in a different sort of place. But it's like the governor's budget, when he came in and said, the budget's based on the revenue that we have. Our revenue is so variable between you know $50 oil one year and $100 oil the next year. Something needs to be done to smooth that out. So the amount of revenue we have is more predictable, or at least we can know how to budget. Well, SB26, the percent of market value bill, kind of did that, right? That was the intent. That was the, that was the hope that we worked really hard on for three years, was getting the percent of market value bill, the, the permanent fund earnings bill. 
one of the problems with it was that it was incomplete, that the bill passed with a lot of its key provisions stripped out at the end because it was as much as could get through the legislature last year. So because the dividend formula was unresolved, what was left on the books was the historic dividend formula. The historic mm-hmm. dividend formula is the one that happens to get to $3,000 right now just because there's been five really good earnings years in a row of the permanent fund, but that's the same formula that got us a $900 dividend in 2013. It just bounces all over the map. So if the market moves around, which inevitably it will, that dividend formula is going to go up and down. But the percent of market value is pretty predictable. You know, two, three years from now, it's going to be a little bit over $3 billion. So eventually, the dividend formula needs to somehow align itself with the percent of market value. Those are more or less conflicting statutes, right? They're conflicting statutes, or at least because the dividend is so variable and the percent of market value is so fixed that the amount that's left for general government becomes this subtractive formula, whatever's left after the dividend. So until the dividend gets stabilized, the government funding part is not going to be stabilized, which means you really can't predict what the revenue is going to be. So going back to oil uh, taxes, I used to work briefly in the oil and gas industry for a little over a year, but before that I worked in the IT industry and a lot of my clients were um, oil and gas industry um, people. So one thing I heard years and years ago when I, I filed a run, I ran in 2012 for the Senate, so I got really kind of more versed in some of this stuff. And um, one thing I'll never forget is someone told me, it was an ex-BP guy, been around for a long time, he, he told me, I think the best place we've ever, I've ever worked is Norway. And I said, uh, huh, that's interesting. I said, don't, don't they have, they have high, pretty high or higher taxes? And he goes, yep, they do. He goes, but they've, they don't, they n- never changes. You know what you're going to get there. It's feel like it's kind of a partnership and, and there's never this kind of, so my thing has always been, it seems like every five years or 10 years, there's a big discussion and then a big new bill. There's, you were around with ACEs, right? That was a big change. And then there was the ELF and the PPT and now there's this SP21. I mean, do you think that's a problem that there's consistent kind of changing of, of our tax system for the oil, oil companies? There have been a lot of changes, but only a couple of them have been big ones. There was the, the big change was really the year before ACEs where they switched from taxing on gross to taxing on net. That was the bill called PPT and it was a huge deal. ACEs came a year later because they realized the PPT formulas didn't work. So, so right. just real quick, and for my listeners, but for me too, a gross tax versus net tax. A gross is you take in $100 million, doesn't matter what your costs are, that's what you took in. Well, right? it's, it's, and gross in the terms of Alaskan oil really means wellhead value. So you always get to subtract the, the pipeline tariff and the, the shipping cost to get it to the refinery in Anacortes, Washington, or wherever it's going. So if a barrel of oil is selling for $50 and it costs $10 to get it there, the wellhead value is $40. And a gross tax would be a percentage of that $40. Uh, right now, you were talking about that alternative tax of 4%. 4% of 40, we'd be getting $1.60 in that scenario. And net taxes, all right, there's your wellhead value, but you also have your actual costs of operating up there. You've got your 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 people and your pumps and your, uh, your trucks and all of the stuff, and not just the operating of the wells that you already have, but the capital spending on the new stuff that you might be drilling for next year also gets built into the calculation. So then you come to this idea of, of profits or what they call production tax value. So you'll take a, it's a smaller number, but you'll take a higher tax rate of a smaller number. But when you're taxing on profits, as the price moves up and down, your taxes move up and down faster. 
a gross tax gets you less at the high end, but it doesn't fluctuate as much when you get price variations, where with a net tax, you could literally lose 90% of your tax just because the companies aren't profitable anymore. I've heard things in in some circumstances under, I guess it would probably be the the, the net gross, where there's been situations where they've paid taxes while they're losing money. Is that is that true? Is that the the gross minimum tax does not account for the fact that they might be losing money. So yeah, we, the the fact that we have that floor means there are circumstances where a company could be compelled to pay it, the state's. It's a severance tax, right? It's a tax on a non-renewable resource that you're severing from the ground. So if they happen to be losing money one year, they still have to pay that tax. Why, why, the way why it's structured. Not, why not just you know, somebody who's not an expert here, but it just seems to me the simplest way would be you produce a barrel of oil, we get X percent of that barrel of oil of the value. You know, we, we get a percentage of every barrel produced. And that wouldn't that be really easy, just simple? And like, it's a math formula. Here, here you go. Well, the key word in that sentence is value. What are we sharing? Are we sharing the market value? Are we sharing the wellhead value? Are we sharing the profits? Norway gets 78% of the profits, but implicit in that is they get to recover all of their costs first before Norway gets anything. So sometimes uh, we have a great uh, consultant that's worked for the state for many years named Rich Ruggiero. And part of his mantra that he's always pounding the table on is it's not necessarily your tax rate, it's your tax timing. The companies want to get their money back, they want to make a reasonable return, and then they're more prepared to pay a higher rate of taxes. Whereas if you force them to pay more up front where they're trying to get their original investment out of a project, that really hurts their their rates of return, their their investment metrics. So there's a lot of stuff on the table. And the problem, maybe the reason we've had to revisit this so many times, is that people are trying to fix one thing at a time, and it's important when you're doing something as complicated and big as oil taxes, is to go in and look at the whole system and figure out how could we make something that's internally consistent and stable. And you put a number in there that says this happens when it goes over $30, and then 20 years goes by, and $30 means something very different than it did when you passed it, and all of a sudden the the old formulas don't make sense anymore. The, the former system before 2006 was based on how many barrels you got from the average well. But as time goes by and they kept drilling more wells to keep the old fields going, per barrel productivity went down and the tax rates really plummeted to way less than anyone had ever calculated. And all of a sudden, we had the second largest field in the state paying effectively a zero production tax. That wasn't sustainable. No one thought that that was reasonable, but the people who owned that field wanted to maintain that as long as possible because they it was in their interest to. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just always hard. And, and I think we've had a lot of these small changes. The bills I was involved with in the Walker administration, we're cleaning up some of the, the tax credit stuff where we're no longer writing checks. We're no longer creating these, these credits for investment where the state's actually on the hook for money out of the treasury. Uh, but we didn't really change anything in the underlying tax system itself. And you know, bit by bit, it, it just it's a, a gradual change might not work as well as a, let's all come together and find out the, the best way to do this. What about these, well, something I was always kind of critical of under ACES, I guess, were these exploration credits to get these smaller companies up here because it's expensive. And, you know, I mean, you, you were paying out billions of dollars um, for, for explore, exploration, which you know, may or may not lead to production. Um, and they've, those have been eliminated. Um, they have been eliminated, but a lot of the people that got them also found stuff, that there's this interesting phenomenon out there of people- Like Repsol or ENI? 
Right, and companies that, and, and, and it's confidential names, the, you, you can't really announce who's received credits, and I knew that when I was at the Department of Revenue. But a lot of these companies, for example, that are now waiting for the cash for their credits because we stopped paying for them, right? First, we stopped paying for them because we didn't have the money, or we slowed down the paying for them, and then we ended the program. But there's still about $700 million worth of tax credits out there in the world awaiting payment, and there might be a bond, or there might be a few years of structured payments, whatever it is. But a lot of those people, interestingly enough, have found oil. They would love to be able to develop those fields and finish getting that oil into market, but they're cash flow constrained. They can't borrow any money because whoever they borrowed money from in the first place that they, they thought they, they would get their, paid back. They want their original money right, back. Right, they want their original money back. So these getting this tax credit thing resolved, I think will end up putting a bunch of new oil into the pipeline and, and put a number of companies I mean, back to work up there. My issue was some of the companies that came up, the, the new ones like Repsol or Ina, I mean, these are established, you know, Spanish and Italian. I mean, these are like not... They're as big as the, the companies we have operating here. We, we just don't have the experience of them because they weren't already in Alaska. But the other ones, there was a bunch of tiny kind of operators that were, you know, I mean, it was kind of known that if they would have even found anything, it was more of a speculation deal and they would have sold it off. So um, there was a lot of companies who got money, huge amounts of credits for exploration who never found anything, who didn't... But the key, Jeff, it wasn't the exploration credit was a tiny piece of the we've spent in cash money, I think, three point seven billion dollars on these tax credits. And the great bulk of it aren't actually exploration credits, but what you call operating loss credits. And what that means is if if you lose money because you're not producing anything, all you're doing is spending, we're going to pay you back for a percentage of your loss. And the idea there was if you're a big company, if you're, you know, BP and you spend money, well, you're paying a profits tax. So every dollar you spend is coming off your profits because the whole north slope is one big uh, thing for tax purposes. So a dollar spent somewhere comes off your profits from the actual oil you sell, and you're saving money by paying less taxes for having lower profits. Whereas the new guy comes up, how do you treat them equally if they don't have any tax obligation to balance mm-hmm. their spending against? So this operating loss credit was invented as a way to try to level that playing field. It just sort of got out of hand because we started spending money faster than it was coming in in some cases. And again, we, we made these commitments that we couldn't afford would, to maintain. Would, wouldn't the, in my mind, wouldn't the ideal credit be, because the behavior you want is production, you want oil produced, wouldn't the ideal credit be some credit tax credit based on your production tax when you produce oil wouldn't that seems to me the most ideal kind of you you want you want people to produce oil you want people to find oil so instead of getting involved on the front end of the exploration you say oh you found oil great uh here's our tax rate because you it's new oil or whatever we're going to give you a break on so many barrels or whatever. That's sort of what we transitioned it to. And, and most of these oil companies, they're, they're not used to getting cash from governments. We had a relatively unusual system around the whole world. <laughs> what they're used to doing is investing a bunch of money, taking a bunch of risk, and then when they find oil, they get to somehow get the profits from it. So what happens now is if a company in that situation is spending a bunch of money, it's being accounted for. We're keeping track of it. They're keeping track of it. And then once they start producing the oil and getting money for that, they get to carry forward all of that spending and reduce their profits by their past year spending and not have to pay taxes on it. It's just that the tax break, instead of happening up front where we're writing them a check, they get it years later when they actually have the oil to offset it against. 
Seems just seems like so so complicated for it is. For but it. we have really good accountants and really good auditors. I I was so proud of the people that worked under me at the Department of Revenue. They're on top of it. They have done a remarkable job of of modernizing their system to keep track of a very very complicated industry. Is that oil and gas? Working group thing still around, or they for, the legislature formed this working group deal where they were supposed to kind of run everything through that. In 2017 session, there was a bill that got rid of these cash credits, and it was a big important bill, House Bill 111. And the House at the time really wanted a tax increase at the time, and the Senate wasn't going to go there, but everyone wanted to get rid of the credits. So the negotiated agreement was, we'll get rid of the credits and we'll agree to come back with this working group and try to come up with ideas. There were a few meetings of the working group. There were some interesting reports, but no definitive answers. And then the, the legislature ended. So there's a new legislature. And so far as I know, that is no longer active. Mm. There have not been any real talks about oil tax restructuring this year. Maybe you and I can start a little Ken Jeff working group. Nobody will, nobody will care. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no one will care. <laughs> no one will pay any attention if someone starts talking about oil tax increases, I'm sure. <laughs> Well, Ken, this has been great. Um, I appreciate you doing this. I, I, it's interesting getting a perspective from from somebody like a staffer, somebody who works in the building, um, and not a legislator, because I think it's a lot of a different. You see a lot of different things, and you've been around and doing, you know, with the administration, whether it be the Walker administration or whether it be in the building. So I appreciate your perspective, and you you really understand this stuff more than, I mean, really, how many people really understand this stuff? Uh, I don't want to say a number, but th there's not that many people that spend the years, for better or for worse, Alaskan fiscal policy and revenue policy is my hobby. It's what I'm actually interested in. It's what I spend my spare time doing. So uh, I've, I've been fortunate enough to work for people that have allowed me to specialize, that I've been able to, to follow major bills around and work on these big issues, that I had then the opportunity to work for Bill Walker and specialize at it. So uh, it's it's a great opportunity. It's a wonderful place to work. And there aren't that many people that understand it at a deep level that have been able to put the 15 years into it that mm -hmm. I have. It's just like other things, too. I mean, I, I don't understand at all fish and game, but some people in the building, they just know everything about it. Um, this crime bill thing was an excellent example. You know, when there's an oil bill going around, I'm kind of the guy. People are coming to me and asking me questions. But... I don't know anything about criminal yeah. justice. This crime bill that was moving around here for the last several weeks, I was fascinated by it, and I'm trying to pick up stuff from the hearings, but I don't pretend to really know anything about pretrial and all sorts of different criminal justice policy. I mean, that's, yeah, this building is full of specialists. Yeah, no, I mean, I think legislators have heard they have to kind of know a little bit about a lot of things, uh, which is generally, I think, true, but, but then you have the specialists who have to know a lot about specific things, and I think that's very important for... Uh, things to happen here because otherwise you, you risk you know people not knowing what they're talking about and something gets passed that might you know be have problems with it they'll put in the plug to have a professional staff around here that's what's needed to keep the things moving there's people who understand how all the transactions and building a budget bill work there's people that understand commercial fishing there's, and the legislature legislators by their very nature have to be generous uh, other um states I've, I've heard and talked to folks other states the committees whether it's the finance committee or the judiciary committee or the state affairs committee they have staff who work on those committees and whether it's a new legislature new people those staff work there and they know what they're i mean they they're kind of general specialists on those things and um, i think the finance committee kind of has that right don't they have some finance staff there are people who've worked for finance chair after finance chair and they it's never official but the new people come in and always hire those guys because they have the skills and the experience. And building a budget is a hugely complicated process. Not just the 
the politics, how much should we spend on this or that, but just getting all of those transactions and all the different funds lined up with each other and making sure that all the pieces are internally consistent so that at the end of the day, it's a legal document. It is a huge, huge effort. And the people that do it, again, and that's not my personal expertise, I have tremendous respect for the people that do that budgeting work. Well, I mean, like I said, for me, being down here the last four months, it's been um, essentially eye-opening just to see how this place functions and how all the parts come together and how people work. And I've uh, really enjoyed it. And, and I've enjoyed getting to know you. You've always been uh, helpful in answering questions and especially in the oil tax stuff. So thanks for saying that. It's been fun having you around. Thanks for uh, putting me on your podcast. I know I'm just a staffer now. No, I've been, I've been trying to get the, we've been trying to work this out for a while. The Ken helper. I might be the last one before you get on the plane tonight, right? Yeah. Uh, unless one other person gets back to me, I think you're, you are going to be the last Jeff Lanfield podcast and, and Juno for this stint anyway. So, but Hope to come back next year. I hope I can work it out. It's uh, definitely, I think, uh, me being down here is a, a different, uh, like you said earlier, it's a different, I've inserted myself into something and I'm doing things differently than I think it's been done before. There was a lot of table setting that happened this year, and the, the governor must be realizing by now that it's a four-year process, that he's, he's in this for the long haul, and there's things that are going to be finished next year that got started this year. And I think the conversation is going to be a little bit different. I would be shocked if we get through next session without talking about revenue, just because we're more or less running out of options. One more thing I want to say is going back to, um, you know, the governor, you said the expenditures match uh, revenues, match expenditures. Um, What would happen if, I mean, if we just had a price of oil plummet right now and it went down to $30 or 40, that, that, I mean, that can't be a viable option at that point, you know, that becomes a problem. That's what happened to Walker, right? I mean, the, Price went way down after he, I mean, it was huge, huge. When it happened to Governor Walker's administration, we didn't have the POMV yet. We didn't, the percent of market value, we didn't have the ability to use permanent fund earnings, but we still had $16, $17 billion in our various savings account. That's been drained down. So all of a sudden there isn't the flexibility of said, oh, well, let's just spend savings and see if it gets Mm -hmm. better by next year. We're really limited to this structured draw. And the structured draw is essential. You can't just ignore it. If you say, well, we've got our $3 billion that the, the actuaries say we could take, let's take another billion beyond that, that billion will compound forever. And by the time it gets to 25 years from now, we're getting a lot less money because that billion dollars hasn't been here all those years. And if you keep doing it, we could actually run ourselves into the ground. The, the permanent fund isn't that different structurally than a big university endowment or a, or a union pension fund or something like that, or a, the Ford Foundation. You know, the, there's an amount that they know they can spend every year to make sure that the money's there to replicate the next year. Mm-hmm. And that's what the percent of market value is. If you go beyond that number, you run real risks of breaking the permanent fund critically. Yeah, no, it's, it's um, something that's going to be discussed a lot. Well, Ken, I really, really appreciate doing the podcast. Normally I do 30 minutes, but we're coming up to an hour because... You're such a fascinating guy to talk to. I really uh, enjoyed I, it. I hope that um, we're not boring the tears oh, off no, of people you, and they haven't shut you off by now. No, no, but I th- I think it's the, been fun, and thanks for the opportunity. And uh, I like your, your sign-in, sign-out music. It's uh, Oh, yeah. Landmine, radio. You like that? Hot energy. That's right. Yeah. No filter. Yeah. Woo. We, got, we have a new one for, I'm not sure if you've listened to Landmine Love. That's a related podcast um, with me and my friend Sabrina Combs. We have a new kind of intro for that. It's uh, It's very... 70s you have to listen to it you'll i'll, I'll play it for you after we we get, like we get done here classic porn soundtrack it, 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 kind it basically of stuff? you know basically i didn't want to say that but you said it. so it's basically a very kind of 70s porn 
um, style from music. what I've been told anyway uh, I'll, I'll play it for you um, after we're done here on the on the uh, podcast but I want to thank you again Ken I'm taking off here tonight so good we'll see you next like time you in June seeing you around and folks uh, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast with me get a hold of me and uh, I'll be talking to you folks next time from Anchorage I guess so well uh, we'll see you then Landline.